Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This is a special one for me in that this week's guest, former Arsenal midfielder Paul Davis, grew up less than 10 minutes away from me. While he was born in Dulwich, South London, and I came into this world a few years later via Kennington, we both grew up in Stockwell, SW8 in Paul's case, and SW9 in mine. It's not an area that turns out many success stories, so Arsenal's old classy left-sided midfielder, a mainstay of the North Londoners for a decade and a half, aside from those spells when he was excluded from George Graham's 11, which I'll come to shortly. For anyone growing up in Stockwell in the 80s, Paul Davis was a big deal for us. One of my closest friends since childhood, an Arsenal fan, lived on the same estate as Paul. Ten years ago, I even ended up living on the same road as Paul Davis's estate, although I think today's guest had left the estate some 30 years previously by then. But I say all this just to illustrate why the old Arsenal midfielder was a big thing for us this side of the Thames. That's before I even understood what he had to go through to establish himself as the first black player to nail down a regular spot in those famous red and white colours, which I think he speaks about rather eloquently and movingly in this episode. That brilliantly multicultural fan base that Arsenal have these days, I think a lot of that came from what Paul did for the club. In this day of super squads, I don't think many would argue with me when I say there would be a place for Paul Davis in any of those squads. I can see him sitting in front of some expensive back four, Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal, how his old team need him now, sitting deep, spraying out passes with that beautiful left foot of his, patrolling that midfield, screening that back four. The midfield anchor, a position that possibly the English game didn't fully appreciate back then, unlike now. It remains staggering that, particularly in the mid to late 80s, peak Paul Davis, before the lengthy infamous suspension, before the fallouts with George Graham, the thigh injury that changed him as a player, that before all that, this man didn't win a single England cap, while numerous inferior players did, particularly under Graham Taylor in the early 90s. 
In this interview, we discussed his early Arsenal days breaking through under Terry Neal at the start of the 80s, a side in transition after losing its two outstanding Irish internationals, Liam Brady and Frank Stapleton, in the space of a year. We look at the Don Howe era, the bridge between Terry Neal and George Graham, a strange, quiet period for the club in many ways, but an important one too, as Howe was the man who blooded many of the youngsters who would go on to help Arsenal re-establish themselves as the country's leading club, albeit intermittently for several seasons under Graham. And we look too at why that hugely gifted George Graham side, despite knocking Liverpool off that perch, despite Alex Ferguson's largely unchallenged claims to the contrary, couldn't stay at the top for longer. Why, I wonder, did Arsenal go from that outstanding title success of 91 that should have made them the team of the 90s to morphing into a very successful cup side that played dull football but had an incredible get-out in the form of the talismanic Ian Wright up front? We also look at the complex relationship that Paul had with the hard taskmaster that was George Graham. Paul was one of the few senior players at the club to challenge the Scot, but he would pay a heavy price at times. This is Paul Davis. Where did you grow up and how did you come to the attention of Arsenal? You know, my, my journey, grew up in South London, born in Dulwich, Dulwich Hospital, one parent family, my mum, she came over to England in the 50s, late 50s, uh, as part of the Windrush generation. You know, it's just myself, my sister, my mum uh, in South London. We moved over to Stockwell very early on and spent most of my Early years in Stockwell, Clapham, that area. My football kind of just developed from just kicking around uh, on the estate that I lived. Also in the flat, I used to remember messing around with a small ball, tennis ball within the flat itself. And my love for the game just kind of developed from there, really, from the age of eight, nine. I then um, joined up with a local Sunday team and started to score a lot of goals for that team. I was a striker at that point. I really enjoyed playing football on a Sunday morning. And then, you know, it kind of just developed, went to junior school. Um, and then one of the teachers sort of took a liking to me in terms of football and said that, you know, you could do something here. I remember one of my teachers saying that at the age of nine, ten. And so that kind of gave me some uh, encouragement. And, yeah, it kind of just went on from there. I, I, I went into um, a secondary school. Kennington school called Beaufoy. It was um, a big school, 1,500 boys in the school and quickly took to the football team. And it just went on from there. I got into my district team when I was 12. So once you're in your district team, then you, you know, you're kind of starting to get to a good level where scouts are coming out and watching players. So it was, um, yeah, it was a South London start. Very proud of the fact that, you know, it's inner city and all that comes with that. You have to, you know, there's a lot of people around. You have to keep out of trouble. And I managed to do that when I was a youngster. I think there was an internal desire to make something of myself in football. And there was a talent there. That's, so that's where it all started in South London, Stockwell, Dulwich. And you grew up an Arsenal fan. Yeah. Would the first Arsenal team for you have been the double winners of 71? Exactly that, yeah. So 71, I was, I would have been 10 
had a TV, fortunately, and I managed to watch that 71 Cup final. I feel that was the first final that I ever was able to see. That was the first one I saw, and Arsenal won it. And and that was it. Charlie Jules scoring the goal, winning goal, and laying down on the pitch. And that was me. That was Arsenal then. That was my team. So that was the time that I really associated myself with any football club. The first ever game that I went to was actually a Chelsea game because one of my closest friends, his dad, was fortunate enough to have two season tickets at Chelsea. Sometimes they would be able to take me along if um, if one of them wasn't going, they'd invite me along. So I did go down to Stamford Bridge, which wasn't, in those days, was quite, a, I didn't see it at the time, but probably looking back on it, it was quite a scary thing to do because you had to share that it was quite, it wasn't as pleasant a place to go to football for particularly a young black person in those days. That was one of the first grounds that I ever went to was Stamford Bridge, but I was already an Arsenal supporter around about that time. So it was kind of, it's just an opportunity for me to go to a, a game. What year did you sign uh, your apprentice forms with Arsenal? Yeah, so I signed my apprenticeship forms when I was uh, 16. Arsenal spotted me when I was 13. I was like I said, I was playing for District South London, and as I said, that's a pretty good standard. You know, you're playing against other districts, North London, um, Camden. You know, it's it's just a good level of football, and I, I suppose scouts those days would go to those type of games. And I was playing in Dulwich for South London, and um, after this particular game Saturday morning. Ernie Collett, who was an Arsenal scout at the time, came up to to me and asked me if my parents were around. This was after the game, and I said, no, my mum wasn't at the game. He said, well, I'm an Arsenal scout, and we would like you to come down, but I'd need to speak to your mum. So that was the first time that any scout had come up to me and shown an interest, obviously straight away. And around about the same sort of time, there was some interest from Fulham as well, and I was actually training at Fulham before Arsenal came. But once Arsenal came and showed some interest, I quickly changed over and started going down to train at Arsenal. Because back then you weren't you weren't necessarily tied to any one club. You could move from club to club. I think now kids are now signed up and you're at a club and that's it, one club. But back then you could move around from club quite freely. But once Arsenal came in for me, in terms of in trials and going down, that was, you know, there was no sort of um, contest then. So that was 13. And from the age of 13 to around 16, I was training at Arsenal twice a week after school. I suppose during those two years, really, of going training after school, they were seeing, you know, how good you were, looking at my attitude, just assessing you, really, assessing the players um, and deciding who was going to get the apprenticeship at 16. So for me, yeah, very, very fortunately, they decided that you know I had something that they felt they could work with, and they signed me as an apprentice at sixteen. So I left school at sixteen and was an apprentice with Arsenal Football Club, which was, of course, just unbelievable dream for me, knowing where I was coming from and knowing where I wanted to get to. A lot of discipline as well for a young kid to be making that journey from Stockwell into North London twice a week. Mm, yeah, it was. And I think looking back on it, I think those kind of things says a lot about a player or a young person. And I look back on that time and I think, because what I used to do, I used to obviously go to school, 
came home from school. My mum was at work. I had to make sure that my, my kit was ready and everything was sorted in terms of footwear and what I was going to use for training that, that evening. So as you said, it was twice, twice a week, Mondays and Thursday evenings. So those Mondays and Thursdays, I'd come home from school, do my homework, get myself ready, walk down to Stockwell Tube, do my kit, jump on the tube, get to um, King's Cross, change at King's Cross, then get on the Piccadilly line up to Arsenal Tube Station, out of Arsenal Tube Station, walk to the stadium. And then we trained at the stadium behind behind the stadium. There was a little gym area in it. So, yeah, I did that, you know, every Monday and Thursday for a year and a half, two years, and never missed a session, was on time. You know, those kind of things, I think, look back on it, and I think um, it kind of obviously says a lot about a young person to have that drive to do that. It taught me so much about if you want something, you can have to, uh, you can have to put yourself out to get it. You can have to get some knockbacks as well. So yeah, I think that has to be a real inner drive. Looking back on it, so yeah, I did that for two years, two and a bit years. You couldn't have made your debut in a bigger game for an Arsenal fan. North London derby, April nineteen eighty. I think Arsenal win two one at White Hart Lane. If I'm right. What are your recollections of the game? I have read somewhere, I think, you were told to track Glenn Hoddle, which uh, for a debut can't have been an easy game. Yeah, it was was an amazing time for me. 17, making my debut against Spurs at White Hart Lane. So, you know, it's just what dreams are made of, really. And I knew I I got to, I was in the squad. um, So the game was on, on, um, I think it was a bank holiday, actually. And so what we used to do as a, as a squad, we used to meet up at West Lodge Park up in North London as, as a team. We used to have a team meeting, we'd have some, uh, something to eat. And we'd just sort of prepare ourselves for, for the upcoming game. So it wasn't until we got to the, to the meeting room that so Terry Neal, who was the manager, named the team and I was in it. And this is probably like three hours before kickoff. So it wasn't as if I knew the day before that I was playing or, you know, literally, you know, two or three hours before kickoff, I, I was selected in the team. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't mobiles around. I couldn't tell my mum really that, that I was playing. She wasn't at the game or my sister. So, you know, it was unfortunate they weren't able to be there, but I was able to compose myself, obviously, on the coach from the um, meeting spot up to the, to the stadium, which is probably about, 45 minute drive I remember just being on the coach driving to the to the stadium thinking you know this this is what it's all been about the opportunity to get in the first team and play in the first team but now I've have to do well you know I'm not just going to be there and it's going to happen for me I'm going to have to really perform so you always I was always and I'm, I'm sure most athletes are saying you kind of that inner voice in your head is talking to you all the time so yeah it's a mixture of excitement and a little bit of fear, but joy as well. Joy of being selected to play for Arsenal. I remember being on the coach, pulling into White Hart Lane, and and the fans at that time were just, you know, it's just mad. And the number of Arsenal fans and Spurs fans coming down the high street, and the the passion that the fans had for that particular game, and just realizing how important it is that you know you you win a derby game. But for me, yeah, as you mentioned there, I had to. Man, Mark Glenoddle, who I always say to people, he, he was 
I played against him many times later and he was comfortably the hardest player that I've ever had to play against. But that day we we did well. We beat them. Great day for us and fantastic day for me. 80-81 was your breakthrough year under Terry Neal. The team had come off the back of four finals in three seasons at that time, but you'd lost Brady. Stapleton is set to leave the following summer. Even though you finished high up in the league, I, I guess you could argue the team was possibly about to go into a period of transition. How do you look back at that first Arsenal team you were going into? It was a transitional time and it was difficult because we weren't, we weren't really... We got through to the finals, um, as you mentioned there, and we won, we won one of those finals. Liam went to Juventus and then pretty soon, around that time, Frank Stapleton left. And it was a tough time to come in. We weren't doing particularly well in the league. And I can remember as a young player trying to make make my way in, in the squad. It wasn't it wasn't really easy because players were having a difficult time in, in the way they were performing. Fans weren't happy with what we were delivering. I'm talking about sort of the early, early 80s. Liam Brady left. I mean, for me, the fact that Liam left was my opportunity because the position that I played was actually Liam, Liam's spot. And, you know, I remember being in training and thinking, you know, I'm not going to get in that spot because Liam's, that's his position, centre midfield. And Liam was an outstanding player. You know, he's one of my heroes. And I'm used to try to copy some of the stuff that he did, but he was he's an exceptional player. And I couldn't dislodge him from the team. He was, if he was there, I wasn't, I wasn't going to play. So for me, it was a big break for me that Liam left and went to join Juve. But yeah, those early 80s was difficult time for the team and we didn't really look like winning the championship. Although we got through the three finals, it wasn't in the leagues, we weren't doing particularly well. Terry Neal was sacked in late 83 and Don Howe is eventually appointed manager on a permanent basis. And it's an interesting couple of years because looking back, Don Howe brought in a couple of senior pros, Paul Mariner and Viv Anderson. But you could argue it's Don Howe who actually bloods many of the kids. Some have come in under Terry Neal yourself, uh, you know, Chris White, Stuart Robson. But some of the kids that then grow under George Graham in his early years, it's actually Don Howe who was bringing most of them through at that time. Don uh, was fabulous for all of us, really. He was such a passionate coach. I don't think I've come across a coach since then that was so passionate and looking back. Sally's passed away now, but he he loved the game so much and his passion and his, his knowledge of the game was immense and he had an effect on every player, you know, young and old. And he was just so highly regarded within the game. Um, obviously, at that time, we didn't realise how much he was regarded. It's only since um, I've recognised, I've come to realise how much Don was revered as a coach. So, yeah, he had a great influence on all of, all of us youngsters he really taught us the game you know he really showed us the intricacies of positions he was a defensive coach so he kind of came from that mindset but he knew how to get his ideas across he was very passionate and he had a big influence on you know the, my kind of education as a player in terms of the technical tactical stuff that came through and as you said you know there was some young players there that he helped at that point 
but yeah, George Graham, when George Graham came in, he took on some of those younger players that uh, Don had nurtured. And Don was Don was hard, you know, you had to be strong, you had to have a strong will and a strong mind to kind of, and that was part of your development, I think, you know, if you got things wrong, he, he made you know about it and you had to, you had to come again. So it wasn't for the faint hearted, if you were, if you were fragile, you know, you were going to struggle with Don, but he was, it was, it was a passion for Don to make you the best you could be. George came in at 86, 87 and just carried on from where Don Don took off, really, because I think George would have known Don from when he played. And um, I think there's a lot of similarities in the way that they they are, or they were as, as, as coaches, very organised. So when, when George took over, he just got us organised as a group and made sure that people were knew their jobs. He built a team around that, around a young group of players. There's so many to mention, you know, Rocky, Dave Rocastle, Kevin Campbell, Paul Merson. There's so many, and Michael Thomas, that he helped and nurtured once he got to the club. And those players were the foundations for the next sort of period of success that we had. You were one of a number of young black players coming through at Arsenal in the early 80s, along with Raphael Mead and Chris White. We go back to the 70s. Brendan Batson had made a few appearances, but had to leave to make his name at West Brom via Cambridge. But I think I'm right in saying that you were the first black player to actually make the long-term breakthrough at Arsenal to establish yourself. And I wanted to know if you felt that you know, it's a time when clubs were making painfully slow progress in terms of, you know, multicultural teams, diversity among fans. I wanted to know if you think that the fact that you nailed down a place in the early 80s and were there for years, whether you in a way helped attract or better connect ethnic minority fans to Arsenal. Yeah, that's something that's actually come up quite a lot in conversations over sort of since I stopped playing and I recognise what look back on it and I recognise what's happened and that's exactly how I see it because it's an interesting one that because it's it's something at the time I recognise I was the only black player in the first team squad apart from Chris Chris White who wasn't playing regularly. Rafa Mead was there but I was I was the mainstay as a black player. And you know those days were tough as a black player. You go to away grounds and they, you know, they just made it hell for for any black players. You know, just it was tough in many ways, but you know, you just you just had to kind of just get your head down and get on with what you wanted to do was play football. And it was a period that it was different times. You had to put up with stuff from fans, not so much players. You know, I can count on probably one hand the amount of abuse I got from players for the colour of my skin. It wasn't it wasn't so much players I mean I, I was tunnel vision I kind of and I think you had to be that way just to get yourself through games and, and to perform without being affected by fans so it'd be games that you go to and the away fans uh, the opposition fans would just it's just it's a free fall you know um, you'd have 30,000 fans just booing you making monkey noises throwing coins bananas you're just trying to put you off your game I suppose as a white guy who only played Sunday League, I recall a game just being abused by five people on the touchline for no reason at all and falling apart. So I can't mm. begin to process as a white guy what that must feel like. Mm. And you're talking about tunnel vision. But 
in order to tackle that, what you've just described, does it in any way slow down your development as a footballer while you try to work out a way how you're going to deal with a level of abuse that you were getting during games? Yeah, possibly. I think you have to find a way of mentally dealing with it, definitely. And I know I speak to a lot of players, black players that played at that time now, and I still keep in contact with all, all my colleagues. And you know, every black player would have had to find a way mentally of dealing with those kind of abuses because you didn't feel you could go, well, the authorities just weren't interested in any sort of complaints or trying to trying to do anything. So you kind of knew that that wasn't, that wasn't going to lead anywhere. You just had to find a way of turning it round. You know, from a mental point of view, you have to be mentally strong and be able to deal with that side of it. So, yeah, I think my mental state was pretty strong. Yeah, so just coming back, I think it's only after I finished playing I recognised how much of an effect uh, me being in the team had a positive effect that it had on the black community because people then would come up to me after I finished playing more so than when I was playing and just said, Paul, what you'd got through in those days was just an inspiration for us. And we were with you and we were cheering for you and we wanted you to do well because we could see the, we could hear, we could, we could feel it, um, the stuff that you were going through. And it kind of really um, came home for me after I finished playing more so than when I was playing. Because I think when you're playing, you're more kind of tucked away from fans and you're not kind of getting people's views on that, particularly that type of stuff when you're playing. And obviously black fans back then, didn't feel safe going to grounds, so you, and there wasn't there wasn't sort of this social media, so fans couldn't get in contact with you necessarily to say how they felt. So it's only since stop playing and you bump into fans, and fans can get older you now more on, on social media, and they can say stuff. So it's only afterwards that you realise that the effect of being the only or one of one or two black players in a, such a major team as Arsenal, the effect it had, it has uh, helped the fact that we've. You know, Arsenal have got a very cosmopolitan set up in terms of their fan base. I do think it obviously aside from our time back in myself, uh, Chris White, Raphael Mead, obviously coming up to Royal Castles, Michael Thomas, Ian Wrights, and then you go on into, you know, Terry Henry's and, you know, so it's something that I feel, you know, very proud of that we were able to kind of help the development of the game and of black players and black people by being some of the first players to play for major clubs. Quite rightly, your midfield partnership with uh, David Rowcastle and Michael Thomas is part of Arsenal folklore. Before that, you'd formed a good partnership with Stuart Robson and, you know, you were both essentially kids at the time. Summer of 86, George Graham comes in, succeeds Dom Howe. And Arsenal lose two players with huge potential in their early 20s, Stuart Robson and Martin Keown. As someone by then, despite still being young yourself, you were one of the senior players. Seeing two promising players leave, did that concern you? Yeah, I think um, when George came in, he was very he was very strict. He was very organised. You couldn't come up against George and have an opinion because he, you know, whatever he said went. And I suppose those characters, those personalities that people that you mentioned, they had big characters and personalities. And, you know, they had their run-ins with George, you know, Stu Robson and was a strong character. 
and Mayan Keon was strong. And you know, I think George, you know, he wasn't he wasn't able to accept players at that time coming back at him, and those guys would would do. And I think they consequently left the club. Um, I think Stuart had some bad injuries as well, but they were they were good players. Mayan Keon left for sort of financial contractual stuff that they couldn't agree with. You know, I had I had my runnings with George later on. We all had our runnings with George because he was quite a tight, you know, strict taskmaster. He just saw it one way, wouldn't kind of take on other bits of information from or listening to players perhaps more more than he did. So yeah, it was it was tough for some of those young guys, but you know, in the same token, it was good for me early early on when he came, and it was good for so many of the other young young players, you say Michael Thomas and. That first season under George Graham, I remember that that's the first season where people really started to talk about you as a player and what you brought to that Arsenal team. Had your level gone up that year or was it simply that you were finally being recognised? I think it's probably a mixture of both. I think obviously George helped all of our careers because he organised us. We all knew what we were doing. You know, there wasn't those superstars really. I think the thing. Before George, there was some senior players that weren't delivering basically, and and then when George came, he said to all of all of us, all the senior players, young players, like you know, this is how it's going to be. This is what I want. If you don't deliver, you're out. He was true to his word, and he, there's some senior players left. Tony Woodcock, Graham Ricks, Charlie Nicholas eventually left, although he wasn't a senior player, but he was sort of a big name player, and one or two others that had been at the club for a while started to leave and that was George's doing and then George started bringing his buys and they weren't they weren't big buys but they were players that knew what they were doing and Steve Bold and Lee Dixon those kind of personalities and characters players that could obviously play but had good character and Nigel Winterburn they came in Perry Groves was one of his first signing so they all came in and, and, and fitted in well with some of our young players, Dave Ocasso and Michael Thomas, and I was a little bit older myself. It all kind of worked. We built a very close-knit squad together throughout the years of George. Around this time, you start to be regularly linked with an England call-up, and you're being pushed forward as an understudy to Brian Robson. I know you were both left-sided. For me, I thought Robson was more of a box-to-box player, you know, a magnificent player. You had the long-range passing sitting in front of the back four. Did you see yourself as a similar player to Brian Robson? Did always being pushed at that time as his potential understudy, did it actually make it harder in a way for you to get that England recognition because you were having to go up against the established midfielder, the, the captain of the country, a huge player for, for the country when, you know, whenever he missed a World Cup or was injured for a World Cup, it was, you know, it, it was just front and back page news, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think um, Brian Robson, he was he was the player for that time. He was he was Captain Marvel. That was the name that they gave him in, in the media, and he's a fantastic player. I mean, he was a player for those days, for those times. He was up and down, energy, scored goals, tackle. A player that I usually admired, and the energy to get up and back and score goals and come back and make tackles. All all round player. He was the first pick in any England squad. I would imagine all all the coaches came back to picking Brian Robson as first pick. And I suppose because we were left sided, yeah, people probably put me up against him. And 
we were different. As you say, I think I was different to that. I wasn't as much of an up-and-down player. I wasn't fighting to tackle, I don't think. I got my tackles in. But my main game was a passing game, trying to open up defences. That was my main skill, I felt, and short, long passes and trying to link it all together. But I wasn't afraid to tackle and I could tackle. I actually wanted to get forward a bit more than I was able to or was allowed to because George didn't want his midfield getting forward and I felt I had a lot more to offer than I was being allowed to. So it was that was frustrating. I think my game was different. Essentially, it was a different game to Brian, Brian Robson's game. But there was other players that kind of kept me out of the squad, the England squad, you know, like Glenn Oddle, who he didn't make as many appearances as he should have done, but he was a fantastic player. Ray Wilkins, who kind of sort of dominated, got a lot of caps and dominated the midfield. So not getting my England cap was really, looking back now, was really a disappointing thing for me not to have happened. I mean, I got in the squads, but I didn't actually get on the pitch. So that's a big disappointment not, not being able to say that I got an England cap. We'll come to that in a moment. Just just before that, the first trophy under George Graham in 87, the League Cup win over Liverpool. What did that do for the team? Because that that's the springboard for that young Arsenal team, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was great for us. I mean, in his first season, George, to, to bring something to the club. I mean, it's been since, uh, since the Man United FA Cup final, probably, what, seven, eight years before we hadn't, you know, and looks like really winning everything. Now he brings, you know, the Lord's Cup. And with a good young team, we felt then that once you get your first trophy, then there's a there's a, there's a feeling that comes in amongst the group and amongst uh, everyone at the club that, you know, you're capable and nothing should be able to stop you from moving on from them, developing what you've just done. So I think that was definitely a good thing to happen to us at that time because we had some good young players. George had got us organised and we won something in the first season. So that kind of said, look, you know, if we keep our heads together, we can expand on this and win more. So, yeah, to beat Liverpool 2-1, it was at Wembley. Liverpool were a good team at, at that time and they had some great players. And to beat them at Wembley, and you know, we felt that we could go on from there and, and, and we did. And that, that battle with that Liverpool team, that's the point at which it really starts. You become their main challengers, uh, Everton are slipping away. So for the next three, four seasons, it's going to be Arsenal and Liverpool battling for supremacy. 88-89 uh, is a difficult season for you. And I, I don't want to go into the specific incident because uh, I'm sure that you're sick and tired of talking about that. I would like to ask, given that we just talked about England a few minutes ago, what impact that incident had on your chances of an England cap. It seems to Russia in a period, so you've been a, a regular for seven or eight years at Arsenal. You're still barely halfway into your, well, you're just, just over halfway into your Arsenal career at the time. But there's going to be periods now, whether it's the ban, there's a long-term thigh injury. And you also cross swords with George Graham a couple of times and you find yourself exiled for a long time from the team. So it's an interesting period in your career where every time you come back, you remind people how good a player you are, but you're out of the team for reasons that have nothing to do with football. How difficult a period was that? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, a lot happened in that time, as you've just uh, mentioned. I mean, the incident, I'll quickly talk about that. But the incident was a retaliation situation in terms of 
Glenn Cockle was in this particular game was it was out of character because we'd played against each other for quite quite a few times. But he was he was doing things off the ball. He was it was very unpleasant what he was doing and the way he was carrying on throughout the game. And I stupidly retaliated and hit him. I went off the ball. He went down. I think I'm not sure if he had to be carried off, but I was consequently banned by the FA for eight games and fined £3,000 for retaliating. The incident wasn't actually seen by the referee on the day. It was that evening that it was on the 10 o'clock news, actually, uh, that it was spotted. And so I was banned on the back of that. That old period was really tough. Yeah, it was um, retaliation that I shouldn't have done, but there was stuff going on that he shouldn't have done. Yeah, so there was a long period there where the ban, I got the ban, which we felt was unfair. But there was so much going on then in that. So there was that. And during the ban period, that was when, you know, I should have been playing for England, really. I should have got the call. I was playing well, obviously, because the ban, it didn't happen. And I suppose it, it did have an effect on my England career because after the ban, I wasn't able to get as close to the, getting into the squad. So, yeah, that was a tough period. And then the George Graham disagreement I had with him, it happens in football. As I said earlier on, you know, managers and their players do disagree and have fallouts. It's just part of, you know, it's part of human nature. And when you're in sport and people want to win and people want to play and people have disagreement, it happens. And, you know, sometimes people do stuff that you probably look back and think, no, you shouldn't behave that way and and I, I like to think George will look back and think well I shouldn't have dealt with Paul in that way because you know we had a disagreement but it comes a point where it becomes um, vindictive. The fallout with George was a tough one because he kind of kept me out of the team for 18 months where it didn't need to be like that I mean you can have disagreements and and, and not agree with somebody but you have to kind of move on and, and get on with it but I think to leave somebody out of of your team for 18 months is something that, you know, you kind of overstep in the mark regardless of what's happened. So, yeah, that was a period that was really tough, really, really tough. Peak of my career, 28. Yeah, there was a lot of things happened in that period that was really painful for me. And... Still to come on When Shorts Were Short, you know, right, he was great for us. He scored goals and he was goal scorer. And, but perhaps as a team, it kind of became more about supplying righty for goals rather than a bit more about a more balanced team. And maybe that, maybe that's what, what happened uh, at that point. Righty, when righty came in, I think, yeah, probably the dynamic of the team changed and everything was more geared to righty scoring and getting goals for us rather than it being more of a team effort. you for downloading when shorts were short you might be interested in supporting the show's patreon page supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short your support for the podcast is appreciated if the shorts weren't short we don't talk about it
What about the injury? You also had a thigh injury that took a long time to resolve. Why did it take so long to resolve that? Yeah, yeah, that was that was a tough one as well. So it came. We went, we went over to Trinidad. I think it was at the end of the season or during the season actually. When it was a time where you could have a, a three or four day break during the season. So clubs used to do this quite a bit and take the players away just just for a change of environment and just change of training and warm weather training they're calling it now but and so we were in Trinidad for three or four days and we had a friendly game there and I just strained the, my thigh muscle in in this game it was just a little strain and we came back and we played league games and I was playing with this strain in the fine it gradually got worse it got to the stage where it wasn't going away I was playing games and it became a rupture so what was a little small tear then became a rupture once it ruptured, then they had to go in and operate. And that was such a difficult time because this was over a period of sort of a year, probably, of trying to come back from this. So, yeah, that was a tough time. And, you know, there's a period with that injury, George keeping me out of the squad or out of the team for 18 months, completely just discarding me, putting me into the youth team. I wasn't able to train the first thing for 18 months. That was painful. Did you try to leave? I did. Uh, I said to George, look, I went to him and said, look, this is not right. I don't think, you know, we can have a disagreement, but to do this is not just not right. You know, and I, I think if you're going to do this, I might as well leave. He wasn't going to allow it to happen. He didn't, he didn't want that. He didn't want me to leave either. So it, that was a tough, I mean, looking back and even at the time now, I look back and think, wow, I don't know how I got through that. And again, it's the mental, the mental side of it. You've got to find a way. Um, things are happening around you. Um, that shouldn't be. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to make get through it? So it was, it was a tough time. You know, players back then didn't have the power that they had now. Some people might say that something like that has happened to Erzul, but you know they've got platforms now that they can speak up. It's not exactly the same. I don't think players are treated now in the way that they used to be because there isn't. You know, the power is more with the players now than it than it ever was than it ever has been. The thing is, uh, I'll, I'll bring this question forward because it dovetails nicely with what we've been talking about. Mm. You were only 25 when George Graham turns up. You're the only senior player who'd been established in the first team before his arrival who actually sees out the entire nine-year George Graham era, although you had your problems because every other senior player, particularly early on, they were eased out. They fell out of favour. They were moved on. Even players who may be like Steve Williams found their form under George Graham. Within a couple of years, he'd made way for one of the kids. But you're still there the day George mm. Graham leaves. So you'd had your, your set twos and you'd paid a heavy price career-wise. But at the same time, he clearly valued you because you were the one player he never sold. Yeah. No, that's is a good way of kind of looking at it all. And I do, I look back on those 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 incidences that happened, big issues and big things that you have to kind of find your way through at the time. And then when you come out of it, is trying to rationalise it all and think it through. You know, George did value me. Uh, and the fact that you fall out with somebody, I think you've got to be able to, especially if it's somebody that you, you value, you've got to find a way of reconciling the differences and, and moving on. And I think George wasn't able to do that. You know, for all the success they brought, you know, there's 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 force to all of us and I think we all got to take some blame when these sort of things happen. But 
we've got to recognize when we've done wrong and you know admit that and and, and look to try and put things right and, and and change things around and not try and hide from it or try and pretend that it doesn't happen so George and I had a really interesting relationship in terms of manager coach I know I knew he respected me for what I gave for the team because he didn't want to sell me even though he wasn't playing me but I felt to cut off your nose really spite your face in terms of not playing me when clearly I should have been playing and it happens you know people do that but I feel that Jules did value me like you say I was with him all the way through his time at Arsenal I knew what he was about I understood the personality I was dealing with I've always been a person that if I see something that's wrong, you know, I always find a way of trying to, you know, put it out there or trying to change it or trying to do something or say something that's going to try and rectify that. I'll, I'll always be that way. And that's something I've recognised in myself. I remember things happening back in the day. You know, we talk about sort of racial things that happen even within the group early days. And I would challenge the senior players. I'd say, look, that's not acceptable or worse to that effect. You know, when I look back on it and think, wow, you're only a 17-year-old kid and you're coming into a, a, a situation where there's senior players and but yet you were able to like challenge it in a way. That's always been part of me. I've always felt that where there's a wrong, I always, you know, I'll try something to make it better. It doesn't always have to be a fight or it can just be a little quiet word. It's just trying to do something so I've always had that and uh, you know it gets you into more trouble sometimes than than you like to get into but you know that's that's the way I am and that's I'll always want to be so yeah you know the thing with George is is something that I suppose is always going to happen but it's after how you deal with these things afterwards how you reconcile them uh, I think it takes two for that to happen if one's not going to do it want to reconcile it's going to be there's going to be an issue all the way through so yeah I see George now and again at an event or sadly the last occasion was Fiat uh, Ferley's funeral. But I'm looking at some stage, hopefully, to reconcile with George in terms of having a conversation. And that'll be my, that's my kind of take on all this is kind of where, and I sit down and let's talk about it now, what, what's going on. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet, but I would like for that to happen. You missed much of the 89 league title triumph in 1990 after getting back into the Arsenal side. They hadn't mounted a good title defence. You go off to Sweden for six weeks on a loan, which in terms of your profile, 10 years in the first team, a high profile player, even back then it looks a little odd. What was the idea behind that? Was it to revive your career or was it a fitness thing? Get yourself ready for the new season. Yeah, it was, it was both, yeah. The idea, yeah, was to go over there, get some training, solid training, solid games, so that I would come back and I'd be fit and ready to play in the, in the games over here. So I went over there, yeah, it was probably four to six months because of the fire injury. And it never, I was never, never the same after that fire operation. I still got, I got a scar there. It's about, on my left thigh, it's about eight inches long, the, the, the scar. So how did your game change after that? My game had to change because power in that left foot wasn't wasn't no longer there yeah the, the subtlety of my 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 left foot was my my major foot I could do everything my left foot I could kick with the outside of it I could kick balls I could you know the weight of my passing was spot on I knew where where it was going once I had the operation on that that left thigh all that kind of went 
it was never the same in terms of playing. I went, I used to go out onto the pitch and in the back of my mind, I knew that I couldn't do what I used to be able to do. They're, they're tough times because it's like just slowly feeling that your career is kind of grinding to an all and it's through injury. And these are the sort of things that are really quite hard to go through because fans and reporters, whoever see you, don't kind of see that side of it. Your performances aren't, aren't where they should be. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, a tough time to kind of get through that. You know, you're training, you're trying to build that, that leg back up and you're trying to get back to where you were. And it feels like it's getting better, but you're not, it's not as strong as it was. You can't do this, can't do that. I and mean, you have to start changing your game. So, yeah, really, really tough times um, in terms of, and, uh, you know, it's it's nothing that a lot of other players, it, I mean, I'm talking about the injury, a lot of players don't go through, but this was particularly difficult for me because it was, it was such a key part of my, my game, my left foot, and you lose a lot, you know. I wasn't particularly a quick player, but you lose a bit of pace. Um, you're not able to turn as quickly. Everything Everything gets affected. You did come back, though, in a very big way in 1991. You only miss one league game. It's a, it's an incredible season for Arsenal. You only lose one game in the league. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on off the pitch. Tony Adams ends up in prison. You end up captaining the side in his absence. If the 89 Arsenal title winning team was a, a dashing team that won it in a dramatic manner, for me, the 91 team is a team that where you just looking at it and saying, yeah, that that's peak Arsenal under George Graham. That is unquestionably the best team in the country by a distance. Mm-hmm. You only miss one league game that year. There's only one defeat at Chelsea. There's obviously a two points deduction as well, which makes it even more incredible. Looking back at that United 90 game, I mean, people talk about the United-Arsenal rivalry of more modern times, but the 90 game but also the 87 game, January 87, those two games, you can watch them on YouTube. I mean, it's it's like watching a different sport. The 87 game is forgotten about because of what happened in 90. I, I think the 87 game might be even worse. What was it like to play in games like that? Yeah, yeah, those games, yeah. I don't see games like that now. You just don't see them. Like you say, it would be good for people just to dip in and look, have a look at how, how those games were played. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were great games to be involved in. You always as a player at that time, Man United and us were well they still are big rivalries, but it's just a different uh, there was a fearsome rivalry, you know, you knew that tackles were coming in, um, you knew that everything was on the table to be played for. Those guys yeah, those guys were so much fun. There was a lot of tension you had to win. You knew there was going to be some sort of fracas. The managers, I mean, George really geared us up and motivated us to win those games and almost anything went. And looking back, you know, there were great games to play in. I mean, the one the one up at Man United, the, the brawl. And at the end of it, there wasn't any punches thrown. There was pushes going in and people sort of, you know, arguing with each other. But it wasn't. The tackle itself, I think it was on Nigel Winogrand by um, McClear, I think, was, was, wasn't was a great challenge. But, you know, the lead up to the games, those games, was fierce. You know, people, the media and fans, and then, you know, the players took it onto the pitch. But they were great rivalries. I mean, I loved playing, you know, I remember playing against Women Moses in those kind of games, normal white side. And those guys, you know, they, they were up for the battle as, as we were. 
the games are not quite the same now, and I think I do um, I do love looking back and thinking about those games. They're such good fun. The ninety one ninety two season is interesting. Arsenal were one of the favourites for that year's European Cup. You earn a one one draw at Benfica in the second round first leg. You bring them to Highbury and. Most people in this country certainly would have been surprised that you get turned over 3-1. That seems, not immediately, but it does seem to herald a shift from that team that was a free-scoring team into a more defensive Arsenal. And suddenly that whole 1-0 to Arsenal, which up until that point had been largely a myth and very unfair on the team, it does eventually become true. Did that game have an impact on the club? Because you were no longer really title challengers. Yeah, yeah, they, they, that's right. I think I think when George came, there was there was a uh, organisation and structure, and there was a, 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 an excitement about the team. And then early nineties, after say ninety two, ninety three, I think we started to lose that. I think uh, the buys that George brought in at the time didn't inspire us as a team. We didn't feel as though it took us on. It was kind of just almost um, going back or staying still. I felt at that time that. We weren't exciting. We didn't. We lost something. Yeah, it's hard to kind of think of what it was, but maybe it just became too cautious. At the same time, you've got the arrival of Ian Wright that season, who did incredible things for Arsenal and for an English striker at that time, unusual in that he could score any kind of goal. And there's no denying what an exceptional striker he was. But in the same way maybe that Lineker's year at Everton perhaps made that great Everton team of the mid-80s more direct, did Ian Wright's arrival mean that Arsenal became more direct and, mm-hmm. and mean that you lost something elsewhere in the team? Yeah, I think, I think that, that, might, that, that could well be it. Wright, he was such a, he's such a lively character to have around. He's like, he just, like, just blew the old place by. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was mad. It was like a thunderstorm just coming into the club. He's like, because, you know, for him, it was a fantastic move, isn't he, coming from Paris to Arsenal. So for him, it was a, you know, it was a dream move, and he kind of just embraced it and, and, and came in such, such confidence and brash, brash character. And it, was, it was definitely good to have him in, but it kind of something went with that as well. And like you say, the game, style probably did go more direct and... You know, right. He was great for us. He scored goals, and he was goal scorer. And but perhaps as a, as a team, it kind of became more about supplying righty for goals rather than a bit more about a more balanced team. And maybe that maybe that's what happened uh, at that point. Righty, when righty came in, I think yeah, probably the dynamic of the team changed, and everything was more geared to righty scoring and getting goals for us rather than it being more of a team effort. 92-93, you come back, you play a pivotal role in Arsenal's double cup wins over Sheffield Wednesday, and then the final trophy of the George Graham era, and your, your final trophy as an Arsenal player, is that Copenhagen uh, win over Palmer. And, and, and as we've just mentioned, this is a very different Arsenal team by then, and I think you've got injuries and suspensions going into that game, and it's a real heroic backs against the wall performance isn't it against a, 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 an outstanding Palmer team what yeah. are your memories of that game we we had some injuries some young players come in Ian Selly I remember playing and Stevie Morrow and then they had they had some really top players at the time um, rolling 
a spear, a Zola blade. On paper, they they were the better team. They had the better players. Well, let's say they had the better players. Probably we we ended up having the better team. But they had some really individuals. And I remember the first 10, 15 minutes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. They hit the poles. They were running by us. They were so quick. I thought, oh, my God, we're going to get this. This ain't looking good. Because you can get a feel when you're on the pitch. If you haven't started well, you you know you haven't started well. But then, you know, players are running off you. You're thinking, oh, did he get off me? And the balls are going through. I remember the first 15 minutes thinking, wow, this is just me thinking in my head. I knew they were a good team. This is like, they're going to run right over us. I think I was on like this. And all of us was thinking the same thing. I looked across at Tony Adams and Steve Bowen and we're trying to kind of just get ourselves together because they were like just running all over us. And they had a better team by far, uh, better individuals. And we managed to get through those sort of first 10, 15 minutes. I don't know how we got it without them, without them scoring. I know they've seen made a couple of good saves early on. They just missed the post of the shot. And we got through those first 15 minutes and just managed to somehow work our way in, into the game. And then obviously we got the goal, Kevin Campbell through to Alan Smith and they weren't able to break us down after that. And that, that was a great night for us, obviously the first European Cup for us. It's the great, the great nights and. Great for the fans that night, pick up that trophy. And yeah, just fabulous memories to, to talk about and look back on. Your time finally comes to an end at Arsenal in the summer of 95. You've lasted the George Graham era, as we've said. You finish up at Brentford a, a year later. As a footballer, how long after retiring is it before you can look back with pride at your accomplishments? The Brentford situation was another tough, tough one. You know, Well, leaving Arsenal, obviously. This is a tough, tough thing to do. Having been there for, I think it was 18 years in total. And, you know, having to leave such a, a great big club, um, it's been your life. That was tough. That was really tough. So I went to Brentford, found it difficult, just just adjusting to the level and and ended up retiring pretty soon after that. I left Arsenal, I had a two-year contract at Brentford. And after the first year, we both parties, myself and Brentford, agreed that it's probably best that we, we stopped it there and not continue the second year. So I knew at that point I wasn't going to go anywhere else. You know, I wasn't enjoying it particularly. Yeah, it was that point really I realised that the football career was, was done and that I was going to be looking to go into coaching. I was always interested in that. And so, you know, finished from Brentford and, and started to get properly involved in, in the coaching. Coaching was always part of me because I was always coaching the young lads even as they were coming through helping them through and coming to me for advice over the years and so I was always I was a coach anyway but it was it's just in a different way I've taken my coaching one of my first coaching badge when I was 17 I think they called it prelim back then it was always something in my mind to do and I always knew that I wanted to stay in the game what were those coaching courses like back in the day compared to you know the oh, yeah. ones that you have now so obviously they were they were completely different and i remember the first one i did when i was 17 we it was offered up to all of all of the 17 year olds at arsenal and again i look back on these things and i think wow paul you did really well because <laughs> no one else stuck it out so we were 17 i would say about 10 of us were invited to do our level two and of course out of the 10 six turn up on the, the it was over six weekends and by the end of it 
there's probably one left and that was me I look back and I think wow you stuck it out you did it you, you went for it you got your qualification I, I look back on it now and think it comes from the person whoever you know if you want to do something it's got to come from you and I look back and I, I talk to coaches now around how I got into coaching and where it started and People ask about how do you get better? It's it's about the individual wanting to do it. And I always talk about that inner drive. And I think I've always had that. But the coaching thing, looking back, is so I finished my career, came back to Arsenal as an academy coach, taking the under-12s and the 13s. And so one of my first teams when I came back was Ashley Cole's group. He was a 13-year-old and I took his group and Fabrice Mwamba. And this was all on a part-time basis. And... uh yeah, really enjoyed it. Really learned a lot about teaching, about educating myself and players, how people learn, finding out about the game from a different way of, you know, how do you put a team together? How do you work with individuals? How, how do you get the best out of people? Communication skills. I learned so much and continue to learn about that part of the game. And so, yeah, came back as a youth team coach. And then, uh, you know, another sort of milestone period after about seven years, I was with the youth team. I thought, you know, oh, not with the youth team, with the academy kids still doing the same 13s. And I thought, you know, this is not really where I want to be now. I need to be, I want to be with senior players and know what it's all about there. But the opportunity never arose for me at Arsenal for whatever reason. And there was a lot of discussion around the time. I, I decided to leave. Again, I felt that things... There's, there's, a, there's a theme going from my, my career is that, you know, if I felt things were being unfairly done or things weren't being done, I would, I'd see how things go and then I would, ultimately I would make, you know, make my point. So I didn't feel as though there, there was an opportunity for me at the senior end of the club and I voiced that opinion and I left and it was a tough, tough thing to do. I've actually found myself in coach education. That's essentially where I am now. I'm kind of fell into coach educational role. This is at the I'm, FA. I'm now at the FA, yeah. I left Arsenal, went to the PFA and did some coach educational there. And then I left the PFA and I've been over at the FA uh, doing coach education. So I kind of fell into the coach education role. I'm a fully qualified coach. I'm a teacher of the game at the highest level. So I do um, teach on the pro license, which is the the highest level in, in FIFA, um, teaching players now on that level of coaching. So I'm really, I really enjoy it. You're part of the game. We're working with players that are finishing, finishing their playing careers and wanting to go into coaching. Yeah. I'm working with some of, some of the best players that are going into, going into management. So yeah, I really enjoy it. Um, love supporting people that want to do that. It's a tough business as people can imagine coaching. Or the industry stuff, being a player stuff, being a coach's stuff, being a manager stuff. So there's lots of stuff going on and it keeps me involved within the game um, at a pretty high level. So it's clear that from the start of your career, going back to your apprentice days when you're you're a boy jumping on the tube to get to the, the other side of London twice a week and coming from a, a single parent family. And you mentioned that when you'd get home from school, your mum was still at work. So you're having to get all your stuff ready. You're making that journey to Arsenal as a kid. That discipline, that that focus, that clarity of where you wanted to be in your career, that also that that sense of right and wrong and having to speak up sometimes to your own detriment, uh, you know, for periods of your career. Where did that come from? Was that 
something you got from your your mum that that value of hard work and just just applying yourself in order to to improve yourself yeah i think it must have done yeah yeah my mum was yeah she's a big influence on on me as a person she's passed away now but she was she always made sure that i kept myself on the straight and narrow she made sure that i didn't get involved in any stuff you know, gangs or with the police you know i can i can feel uh now just the presence of that that's so all i think yeah parents and people around you as a young person is really important so i've got two boys now i've always felt that you know it's important that you're around particularly young black boys they need to have people around that are going to keep them you know on the straight and now it's quite easy i think to get yourself into situations that you shouldn't i think it came from my mom and then i suppose you know some of it must be within me anyway yeah and it's something that I've always wanted to help others if if I can, if they ask for it. It's just something that I feel that's in me. And I look back and I feel that I'm happy that I have stood up for what I believe in, and even if it has been detrimental. And I'm even now, you know, I'm still strongly involved in stuff to try and improve the game. Lack of black managers, lack of black coaches is something I feel very strongly about and want to do. and help to improve that situation because i think it's the right thing to do it's going to improve the game but i think with all this you have to be sensible every situation needs a certain way of dealing with it every situation that come I come up against or i see there's there's a context to it you have to make judgment calls all the time as to whether you're going to challenge it leave it alone for this moment challenge it later on or if there's nothing going on at all, then you don't need to worry about anything. But there's always stuff going on. And I think particularly as a black person that's gone through the soccer industry or the football industry and seen what I've seen and experienced what I've experienced, I think it's important that I speak when the time is right. I think it's important that I support what I believe is right. So, yeah, uh, I'm very heavily involved in obviously coaching, but also the area of the lack of diversity within the game, particularly at the um, coaching management end. Thank you, Paul. That's great. I appreciate your time. And uh, listeners won't see this. They'll be able to listen to it. But let me just say that for a man who turns, I think, 60 this year, you don't even look 50. So uh, you might need (laughs) to share that secret. That was Paul Davis. I walk past Stockwell Station pretty much every weekday and ever since our interview, every time I go past the station now, I can't help but visualise a teenage Paul Davis making that considerable trek after school from this part of South London and across the river to Highbury. That is a long journey and you've got to admire anyone who as a kid, could see the bigger picture. All those hours after school spent on the underground visualising the great prize in sight, wearing that Arsenal shirt, and he did it. He lived his dream. He won every domestic trophy going and a European Cup Winners' Cup to boot, and in the process helped a great club to widen its fan base at a time when English football, I suppose unfortunately, as it is again now, had real problems with racism. There is now a Patreon page for this show with one tier of support currently available. 
That is called the season ticket. That's just launched. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Patrons will get early access to all episodes up to a fortnight early. They'll get exclusive bonus content too, stuff that's had to be edited out from especially long interviews. And also there'll be standalone exclusive to Patreon supporters episodes of when shorts were short. I'm aiming to get four episodes out a month. A Patreon page is the easiest way for me to make this show and makes all the work involved hopefully financially viable. It's a big undertaking. I'm currently sitting on over 80 hours of audio from just over 30 episodes recorded since March for this latest series of When Shorts Were Short. The first series was a a soft launch, really, for various reasons, all explained during that first series. I couldn't get that first series out in the way that I wanted to, owing to lots of things going on in this building, and the pandemic had a real impact too. But this is it now. I now have enough episodes batch recorded for me to go away now and turn these out regularly. If you're a Patreon supporter, you get these episodes right away. If you're not, they are released two weeks later. And this now means the show is up and running. Lots of big names interviewed and some really good writers as well, some of whom you'll be familiar with. They're all lined up for this second series. This model represents the best chance for the show to survive. I can finance the research materials this way that I need to buy for the show. I can pay off the equipment I had to buy to do all this. And hey, I can pay some bills too, which is important when each individual episode can take weeks to prepare and edit. To give you a little behind-the-scenes glimpse of how podcasts work these days, you need 10,000 listeners per episode to make money from advertising. This show is as far away from that as it could be right now, but maybe with the big guests I'm managing to draw in now, such as Paul Davis this week, the podcast is, I think, I hope, headed in the right direction. It's just going to take time to grow it. Also, another way to support the show, of course, is to rate, review and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Apple user, tell your friends about it. Again, reviews on Apple Podcasts especially do increase listenership. The Apple Podcast algorithms, however they work, they do note the uh, the extra reviews. The show, as a result, gets a bit more publicity in the Apple Podcast Store, iTunes Store, whatever it's called these days. More people then start finding the show. That equals more downloads. Acast, the home of the podcast, might note, hey, there's something happening here with this show. It's growing. Maybe we should do something to support this show. Unfortunately, unless you're a big show or you're fronted by some big name these days, the podcast platforms will not plug your show, which is frustrating because good content is good content. Thank you always for listening. Thank you for being patient as this uh, new series was put together. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page for that, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me via Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTyson.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs>